Let's jump to our scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Corey jumped ahead a week to chapter 3, which was appropriate in some ways because chapter 1 and 3 talked about the divisions in the church. And this week, we're looking back to chapter 2. I invite you to follow along as I read the 16 verses. Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the spirits of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Word of the Lord. A few years ago, Marilyn Manson was bringing his concert to the Venandal Arena in downtown Grand Rapids. And because he's a rather dark, demonic, heavy metal entertainer and singer, booking him at the Venandal Arena was controversial to some. So on the day of his concert, some Christians showed up with picket signs demonstrating and protesting the fact that he had been invited to give his concert in our city. Other Christians just stayed home, kind of ignoring it all, figuring, you know what? Spiritually lost people will do what spiritually lost people will do. His fans lined up by the droves, waited for an hour or more outside the venue, around the block, eager to get in to see the show. And a very small group of Christians had prayed and discerned and asked God, God, how would you have us react to this event? 
And they felt led to come with wagons filled with soft drinks and water and freeze pops, and they served the fans of Marilyn Manson as they waited on a very hot and muggy night to get into the venue. Interesting reactions to Marilyn Manson coming to town. Which of those groups would you most likely be a part of? And how do we as Christians determine how we're supposed to react when things like that happen? Even Christian communities vary and differ in what they do. It's not just these big events when we're forced with these decisions. It's the little events in our lives. It's our day-to-day lives. How do you and I effectively live next door to someone who does not know Jesus? How do you do that? That's a good question. Some of us are in that situation. Or, how do you interact with the people at work who are far from God? It takes some real wisdom to know what to say, what not to say, what kind of demeanor to have. How do you engage with a family member who has left the faith? Do you say something? Do you say nothing? These are really important decisions that we are faced with. And our text actually addresses this issue through the Apostle Paul's words to this church in Corinth. Paul had just come from Athens, big city. He was in the Areopagus, you might remember, reasoning with all their philosophers about their ways of thinking. And he noticed a statue to an unknown God. And he said, let me tell you about this unknown God and about Jesus, his son. And he presented the gospel in that context. And a a few people believed, not a lot. And then he went on to Corinth. And now he's in Corinth, and now Paul is tasked with one of these decisions. How do I present the Gospel here in Corinth? I know what I did in Athens, but I wonder how God wants me to present the Gospel here, another major Greek city. And so he tells us what he decided to do in verses 1-5. through He writes, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters... I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. So Paul didn't come to Corinth in a way that people there would find attractive. He didn't come with eloquent speeches which people loved, with great oratory ability which captured a crowd. He came in weakness because he didn't want their faith to rest on clever arguments. He wanted them to know the power of God in their lives. So Paul chose God's power over human wisdom. 
He just chose to present the simple good news about Jesus. But would it work? Paul wasn't very impressive to the people in Corinth. He, he wasn't a lot to look at by some reports. He didn't have a lot of money. He didn't come from a wealthy, influential family. He was educated and he spoke well, but by occupation, he was a tent maker. That's a low-class occupation. So Paul, during the 18 months he was in Corinth, made tents. And what that looked like probably was that he made and repaired sails for the ships in the two ports that were very nearby. And that's how he made his living. Not very impressive to the aristocrat class in Corinth. And yet, he presented the Gospel. He didn't want people to be impressed with him. He wanted them to be impressed with God. And some were. Some believed. Because there's something deeply experiential about following Jesus. You can go to church. We can go to Christian schools. We can know all about God. But what it comes down to is, do you know God? Have you experienced Him? Christianity is not just truths to believe. It's things, it's a person to know and experience. You know, Marilyn Manson went to Christian school. Till high school. But eventually he grew up to reject the faith of his parents and has made his life mocking the religion that he grew up in, in many ways. It's kind of sad. But what about you? What do you base your faith on? Do you believe in Jesus just because your parents taught you to? Do you believe and follow Jesus because... Well, you grew up in a place that was a lot of Christian people, but if you'd grown up in a different place, you'd never believe in Him? Do you believe in Jesus because you know yourself to be a sinner, and yet you've experienced God's love and mercy and grace in your life? You've, you've experienced redemption. You've experienced forgiveness. You're a person who can testify to the grace of God in your life and, and His goodness in your life in spite of who you are and what you've done. Is that why? You've known it. You've experienced it. You've tasted it. That's what we want you to do. We want you to know Jesus, to have experienced Him. Because it's not just truth taught in an old book like Scripture. It's an experience deep in our own hearts. But how do we convince people that God is good and the Gospel is true? Like Paul, we're faced with that same question. What do we say? What do we not say? What is our demeanor? What is our approach? What's going to work? What isn't going to work? 
Well, some people know, well, you know, people like money and they like to be well. And so health and wealth gospel. Let's just tell everyone you believe in Jesus. All your prayers will be answered. All your problems will go away and you'll be rich. That's a very popular gospel around the world today. But eventually you come to know that that really isn't how it works. God does heal. He is good. He does answer prayer, but it's not always every time the way we want it to be. Other people try to attract a crowd with a big show, a big glitzy, glamoury show with lights and fog machines and lasers and a big thing that draws a crowd. But then you kind of know, well, that's really interesting, it's really entertaining, it's really engaging, but it's just this moment and that really doesn't help me to know and follow Jesus. So is that what we're going to do? The real proof that God is good and the Gospel is true is that He's changed your life and He's changed my life. We're not perfect people. No one would ever claim to be perfect here today. And yet, wouldn't our lives be drastically different if Jesus had never gotten a hold of our our hearts? Wouldn't we be in a very different place? Probably. And so we all have a, a story to share about because of God's love and grace, This is where I am today, whereas else I'd be pretty lost. Then in verses 6 through 8, Paul talks about God's secret wisdom. Let's read what he writes together out loud. We do, however, see a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. What is Paul talking about here? What is God's secret wisdom? I wonder if Paul is simply referring to God's plan of redemption. Because we're all broken and sinful people. The whole world is broken and sinful and going to hell. And God loves the world and so He sent His Son to die and He lived a life that we should have been living. And when we put our faith in Him, He forgives us and promises us that we will have eternal life with Him. I mean, that is an amazing message. It's a crazy plan, actually. Nobody would have concocted this on their own. And there's no other world religion that tries to tell people what Christians tell people. That God loves broken people and you don't have to earn your way, but it's just a gift of faith that you can receive. It's amazing good news. John 3.16 summarizes it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish as we all deserve, but we will have eternal life. That's amazing. That's the best news we've ever heard. Because when Jesus comes into our hearts and lives, we find peace. We find hope. We find joy. 
He brings a life into our world that death can't even overcome. But it endures in spite of death. And He's called us to be His ambassadors, to willingly choose to live under His rules and under His reign so that we can be His people and do His work in the world, whether it's in Mazatlan or West Michigan. Verse 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Often, when I hear those words, I think of heaven. It sounds like it's describing heaven. And it is, but it's more than that. It's, it's life. It's life with Jesus. No one can fully explain what that is like to walk with Jesus and have this new life, even in this world, much less the next. It's this amazing mystery. We're forgiven. We're loved. We're freed from sin. We're called to be His people. And we have that privilege of, of living for Him. And the reason we understand and believe all of this is because God has given us His Spirit. Verse 12 says, And we have received God's Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. Because when you receive Jesus, the Spirit comes with Him. That's kind of how it works. It's like a package deal. And the only way we're ever going to believe is if God makes a dead person's heart alive. Because our hearts are all dead in sin. But God comes and makes us alive and helps us to believe and brings us to repentance and faith and then continues to lead and guide us in what we do. Paul explains it like this in Romans chapter 8. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. So we have the Spirit of God. If Jesus lives in your heart, you have God's Spirit living in you as well. Now, we don't always surrender our will to God's will, do we? In fact, we're not nearly as successful as we would like to be. We have these options, these voices that call us to go in their direction and do their will. And sometimes we follow one that leads into sin. Sometimes we just follow what we want to do and we're not listening to what God wants us to do. We're just doing our thing. There's all sorts of ways that life can get off track. But when we're tuned into God and His voice and when we're following what He wants us to do, we end up in an amazing place. It's not always easy, but it is an amazing place because you have a front row seat to watch God at work and to watch Him even use you for His influence in the lives of people. 
really is amazing. This is what happened to Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Before Pentecost, you might remember, they with the other apostles were in the upper room afraid for their lives. Locked door, keep quiet, don't let anyone know we're here. Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And now Peter and John are in the temple courts proclaiming Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He is the Messiah and Lord of all. And they heal a crippled beggar in Jesus' name. And everyone is amazed. And so they get pulled into the Jewish Sanhedrin to explain. They, of course, weren't at all happy with what they were doing. But then we read this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the Scriptures where it says, the stone you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is, no, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were no ordinary, they were, they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. That's such a remarkable story. This turnaround from being scared people to bold proclaimers of what they had known and experienced. They were being led by the Spirit. And they had so much courage, they didn't even know what to do with it. So the, the, the Jewish leaders didn't know what to do with them either. They said, stop talking about Jesus and His resurrection or else. And they left the room and they talked all about Jesus and His resurrection. I mean, who does this? This is, the, this is God at work in the hearts of people surrendered to Him and being led by His Spirit. So Paul, when writing to the Christians in Corinth, wanted them too to follow His example, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Spirit and the mind of Christ. Because they had a choice every day, just like we have a choice every day. We can either let our sinful nature control us, or we can invite the Spirit of God to control us. What are you going to do? Paul says to the Romans, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So we need to stay in tune with God. We need to be in His Word because we want His Spirit to dictate the direction of our lives, not my own wicked heart, not your own wicked heart, not our own self-centeredness or what we desire or want, 
Because the problem is we're going to become just like everybody else. We begin valuing what the world values. We desire what they want. We live exactly like they do. And there's no discernible difference between Jesus' followers and people who don't know Him at all. And that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the followers of Jesus who end up living like that. And it's a tragedy for the kingdom of God. How is God's kingdom going to come? How are people going to come to know Jesus if His own people aren't the ones who put Him on display? Who, who show Him? Who talk about Him? Who are bold and courageous and led by the Spirit to do God's will, not just our own? It all hangs in the balance on this. This daily choice. Paul instructs us in Romans 12, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So let me invite you to do something. When you wake up in the morning, invite the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you that day. Say, Lord, I'm yours today. This is the day I want to live for you. How can I serve you today? I want you to lead and guide me. I want you to teach me to say no to my own heart, to the ways of the world. I'm yours today. And I want to be fully present to speak, to act, to do what you want me to do, even if it's different than what everyone else is doing, even if it's serving soft drinks to Marilyn Manson fans. That's where I want to be. A prayer of surrender. Because, friends, that is an amazing way to live. Let's pray. Lord, all too often, we end up living life the way we want to live it. We're in charge. We're firmly on the throne of our lives. And we don't see much happen as a result in a spiritual sense. But Lord, help us to reject that self-centered way of life. And help us to invite You to be in charge of our lives. Give us the courage and boldness of Peter and John. Fill us with Your Spirit and allow us to open our lips and to testify to what we know and what we've seen. Because our lives have been changed by You. We are not the same people we would be without You. Help us, O oh God, each day to surrender once again. To not follow our sinful nature, but to follow You, the Lord of life, for Your glory.